Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have just sung, speak, O Lord. This is what we ask of you, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Take your word and plant it deep in us. Mold and fashion us. We ask that your word would speak to us in a fresh way this morning so that you might receive honor and glory with our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been described as the greatest sermon ever told. It has influenced more people than any other message. It has transformed the way people relate to God and to others. Large sections of it have been memorized by both believers and unbelievers. Even young children know parts of it and sing the words of in a song. The words of the sermon have such power and authority that often penetrate to the very core of our being as it shines light into our dark hearts and we are left exposed before God. There is no sermon like it. And we know it all too well. It has been called the Sermon 
on the mount. And it is recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And my hope is that as we unpack the Sermon on the Mount over the next six weeks or so, is that God will speak to us in a fresh and new way so that the light of Christ might be seen in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. That's my hope and prayer for us over the next several weeks. When we consider the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we recognize that Jesus is addressing the issue of what life looks like for those who belong to the kingdom, what life is to be like in the kingdom of God. The message of Christ, this Sermon on the Mount, the message of Christ is given to teach the citizens of the kingdom what life is to be like in his kingdom. In other words, Jesus' sermon is given to teach his followers what life looks like for those who participate in his reign. What life looks like for those who belong to the new covenant community. So this morning, we will focus on these first 16 verses in which Jesus describes the citizens of the kingdom. And what we see is that the citizens of the kingdom are blessed by God, depend upon God, serve others for Christ, and make a difference in the world. So first, the citizens of the kingdom are blessed by God. The citizens of the kingdom are blessed by God. God. Consider with me the context of Jesus' message. Matthew has emphasized from chapter 1 how Jesus fulfills or brings to pass the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And what we've seen is that Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. We've seen him reliving the life of Moses. In chapter 2, when Jesus was a small child, he flees to Egypt, and then the Old Testament is fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son, just as the people of Israel were called God's son. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is God's son who goes to Egypt and comes out of Egypt. And Jesus is rescued from Herod like Moses was rescued from Pharaoh who has the young male children killed. And then in chapter 3, Jesus is immersed into the waters at his baptism like that of the Exodus in which Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And then what do they do? What do they do? They go into the wilderness And Israel and Moses fail in the wilderness where they lived for 40 years and and were tested during those 40 years. And Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by the devil. And what does he do? He intentionally quotes passages from Deuteronomy, which picks up on Israel's time in the wilderness. And where Israel and Moses failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds in his time of testing. 
And then, having called men to follow him, and having great crowds see his miraculous work at the beginning of his ministry, we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Stop right there. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar given what Matthew is doing so far in this account? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of commands, but instead it's blessed, blessed, blessed. This is what he says to his disciples who came to him, whom he has just called to follow him. And they responded to his call with authority and power and purpose Jesus teaches his disciples and says, Blessed are those who, all the way up to verse 11, when he says, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Those who belong to the kingdom are blessed by God. This word blessed does not simply refer to being happy. Happy are those who mourn? I don't think that's what it means. Because happiness is a subjective state in which our circumstances influence our emotions or feelings of happiness. Rather, what I think Jesus is saying is that God blesses you. God approves you. He is for you. God blesses the poor in spirit. God blesses those who mourn. God approves the meek. And this is a picture of God's grace, isn't it? It's a picture of God's grace. Those who belong to Christ are approved and blessed by God. Not because of any righteous actions that we have done, but because of His great mercy and grace. Before any mention of commands that we must do and keep, we are given this pronouncement of God's blessing and approval upon us. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar in light of what Jesus is doing on the mountain? This is often missed in the Old Testament. When it comes to understanding the law, the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant, in Exodus 19, the chapter that comes before the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 19, we read this. They came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain and saying, 
Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now listen to Exodus 19, verse 4. This is, this is remarkable. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God's grace, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's approval and his rescue of the people of Israel. And then... And then in chapter 20, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, right before the Ten Commandments. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, and then in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then they are given the commands to obey. God displayed his grace in rescuing the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. They are his sons. And we who belong to Christ have been rescued out of our slavery to sin because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ on the cross. And God approves us and blesses those who are citizens of the kingdom. Before any mention of the commands, we have a declaration of God's approval. The citizens of the kingdom have experienced God's blessing in Jesus Christ. And this blessing is evident in the privileges and rewards given to those who follow him. There's, did you catch that? Did you catch that? There's is the kingdom of heaven already. They shall inherit the earth. Not yet. These blessings already belong to those who are citizens of the kingdom, but not yet in their fullness. So, brothers and sisters, as those who belong to Christ... As citizens of the kingdom who follow Christ, you are the recipients of God's grace and mercy. Rejoice in that. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, if you are following Jesus Christ, the declaration is already made concerning you. God is for you. No matter what you have done in your past, 
no matter how many times you have failed. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ today, who died on the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ today, God is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor any power can separate, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may we rejoice that we are blessed by God. May we rejoice that we are blessed by God because we belong to the King. We belong to King Jesus. Second, the citizens of the kingdom depend upon God. The citizens of the kingdom are described as those who depend upon God. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These first four Beatitudes emphasize our dependence and reliance upon God, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these characteristics describe what it looks like for those who depend upon God. Now, I, I don't in, intend to unpack all the Beatitudes. Dwayne has done a fine job of that in the past. If you want to hear how, how he defined them and explained them well, you can go to the website. And listen to his sermons on it. He did a fine job of it, but I only want to highlight this morning the first one. Because of its location and its relationship to the others. Look again at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now jump down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude helps frame this entire section as it repeats the promise in the last beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it helps us see that Jesus is focusing on the kingdom which already belongs to those who follow him. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and it belongs to the poor in spirit. So who are the poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
To be poor in spirit means that we have a deep sense of our unworthiness and sinfulness before God. It means that you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt. If you are poor in spirit, you are in spiritual poverty. You're like a beggar seeking after food. You recognize that there is nothing in you that can earn God's approval. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Saved from wrath, And make me pure. This is the poor in spirit. They are helpless beggars. This is the one who mourns over their sin. Not because they got caught in it. But because they have a godly sorrow over their condition apart from Christ. This is the meek. Who, humble, who are humble before God because they know how sinful they are. This is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't have a righteousness of their own, which is why they hunger and thirst for it. They long to do what is right, to be made pure and blameless by God. This is what it looks like to depend upon God. So brothers and sisters, my question for you is this. Are you depending upon God? Do you hunger and thirst For righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst to do what pleases God? If this is not true of your life right now, if you would say to me, Sean, I just don't hunger and thirst to do what is right right now. You say, Sean, I just don't desire to do what pleases God right now. I would say to you, I would encourage you this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I see my sinful and spiritual, when I see my lack of condition apart from God, when I see my spiritual condition apart from God, when I see that I am a beggar 
seeking after that which I cannot provide for myself, when I see that I am spiritually bankrupt, it causes me to look outside of myself to the one who can provide. And then I see his provision for me on the cross. And it produces in me a desire to do what pleases him. So may God give us grace to depend upon him. May God cause us to depend upon him each and every day. And may we constantly see our need for the Savior. Third, third, the citizens of the kingdom serve others for Christ. The citizens of the kingdom are characterized as those who serve others for the sake of Jesus Christ. I see this in verses 7 through 12. The first four Beatitudes focused on our relationship with God. And these last four, primarily, they primarily focus on the actions toward others that come as a result of that relationship. Jesus moves from the blessing pronounced on those who depend upon God to the actions that flow out of a heart that relies upon him. Our dependence upon God should lead us to live for God. It will lead us to serve others for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is what we see in these final Beatitudes. The followers of Christ live for Him and serve others. They are merciful. Their lives display a willingness to help those in need. They are pure in heart. They have a sincere devotion to Christ and are completely committed to Him. They are peacemakers, which means that when conflicts and division arise, they seek to reconcile and restore broken relationships. This is what it looks like for us to serve others for the sake of Christ. And I'm thankful how I have seen you serve others for the sake of Jesus Christ. But it's important for us to know, it's important for us to know that when our lives reflect our commitment to Christ, it will result in persecution and various kinds of suffering from unbelievers. But though we may be mistreated by those who do not know Jesus Christ, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. As his followers, we can withstand persecution, suffering, and mistreatment even while we serve others because we will be rewarded when he returns. The reason that our brothers and sisters can stand firm for Christ in other countries, even as we speak right now, as they suffer even to the point of death, they can stand firm because they know the reward is great in heaven. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die 
is gain. To die is gain. Do you believe that? I pray that we would continue to live in such a way in our service towards others, in our commitment to Christ, that no matter what people might do to us, no matter what people might think of us, no matter what people might say to us, that we would rejoice because being with Christ is far greater. It is far better. And may the knowledge of that reward cause us all to a deeper devotion to Christ and a greater service to others for his sake. Now, fourth and finally, the citizens of the kingdom make a difference in the world. The citizens of the kingdom are not only blessed by God, depend upon God, serve others, but they make a difference in the world. As followers of Christ who live and act differently than the world, we are called to make a difference in the world. Look at verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus again describes the citizens of the kingdom, doesn't he? He describes them as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Look again at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Jesus does not say, you will become the salt of the earth. You will become the light of the world. Rather, you are the salt and light of the world. In other words, Jesus describes the identity of those who belong to the kingdom. We are the salt and light of the world because we are united to Jesus Christ, who is the true light, who is the great light, which has made himself known in darkness, and which has shined in our world. And now, as his followers, our identity is that we are salt and light of the world. And because of this new identity, we are called to live a certain way. This is not optional. If you belong to Christ, it is not an option. We are called to live for Christ as salt. We are warned not to lose our distinctiveness and our influence. We are called to impact the world through our actions. Just as the purpose of salt is to preserve things from decay and give taste to food, and just as light is intended to give light to the things that are in darkness, 
so we are called as followers of Christ to impact our world. Part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ is not only to live differently in the world, but to make a difference in our circles of influence. And when this happens, as we display actions that point people to Christ, this happens when we display actions that points people to Jesus Christ. And I do believe that as we live differently, as people see us live for Christ, it will lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we don't live any differently, we will lose our difference in the world. We have a tendency to think that we need to be like unbelievers in order to win them to Christ. That we need to embrace our culture and the things in the world if we're going to make a difference. We have a tendency to think that we need to watch what unbelievers watch. We need to read what unbelievers read. We need to listen to what unbelievers listen to. And then if we do that, we'll be a better witness to those around us. We have that tendency that if we do that, then they'll be more likely to accept Christ. But brothers and sisters, this notion is not in the Bible. This is not what it means to become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. If the only difference between us and unbelievers is that we go to church on Sunday and we more regularly give money away, why would they want to join us? If we live and act no different than the world, why not sleep in on Sunday and spend our money on earthly pleasures? If we are to make a difference in our communities, it will happen as we devote ourselves to Christ and as we display the love of Christ to others. So may we then be a bright, shining light in our dark world. It is a dark place that we live in. Let's be bright, shining lights for the sake of Jesus Christ so that those who see our actions will desire to trust in Christ and live for him. Let's pray together. And Father in heaven, our heart's desire is to see you glorified through our actions. Our heart's desire is to see not only all of us come to know Christ better, but to make him known so that others can know him. Our heart's desire is to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ and to a full, full maturehood in him. So would you work in our hearts to love you more, to depend upon you more, 
and to serve others for the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and join together in our closing hymn.